All right, and let us get started as we bring in Rachel Nichols from Los Angeles, the host of The Jump. She has been a guest on the podcast I did at Sports Illustrated, and now she returns to the Sports Media Podcast. Rachel, thank you for getting up very early this morning in L.A. Well, it's funny. So I'm listening to you do your intro, and I'm getting a little jealous because I, too, would like to talk to Candace Parker. She's one of my favorite people. And then now I'm thinking about when I did your pod the first time. I think I was your me and Adam Schefter were your first week guests, Correct. right? You were the debut guests. Um, and, uh, yeah, from there it turned into a podcast that was, you know, mildly successful for, for its form. So I, <laughs> so I have to thank you and Adam Schefter for getting us off to a good it was Vern, I think it was you two and then Vern Lundquist after that. So I really was trying to capitalize the market on, uh, on icons in the business, I don't Rachel. Know if we get, I don't want to know if we get hats or something. Like, I just take, like, a baseball cap maybe or, like, a mug. Yeah, by the what way, if I, if I was smart, I would have had Schefter later on, just given all the, you know, uh, Twitter followers he has. He's, he's become a juggernaut <laughs> in the business. <laughs> Uh, no hats. No, this, this, this show is uh, this show is treat. And by the way, Candace Parker can can a TNT or Turner person come on your uh, show? I bet oh, you they. Sure. Oh, they can. Yeah, we've yeah we've had we've had plenty of mixing. Absolutely. First of all, Candace has Candace has been on the show a bunch, um, and also yeah, we definitely have had TNT people on the show. All right, so let's start this off. With, my go ahead, folks. I used to work with. Come on. Yeah, I know. We cross party lines. Yeah, I know. We had Lee Jenkins on the show a bunch, even when he was at SI. Now he's a now he's a Clipper. Yeah, hey, Rachel, yeah, yeah, exact- you've, you've essentially worked for everybody. Uh, you know, <laughs> short of Roger Sports in that in Canada. Um, all right, as uh, here's where I want to start because I think people will be interested in this because there's a lot of basketball fans who really like your show. So, as detailed as you can, how does the jump get put together each day? Uh, well, it's it's both sort of a, a rush and an in-depth process all at once because we're a daily one-hour TV show, five days a week. Um, and I know that you've had other guests on who are in that scenario. I've heard Tony Reale and lots of formats talk about you're kind of making the sausage every day, but also you want to be special. Um, so we have sort of long-term, big-picture ideas and segments and goals, and then sort of short-term, we're constantly turning over what happened in the NBA in any tw- 24-hour period. One thing that I really enjoy and is fun for us is we're – have that middle of the day kind of time slot where we're not a pregame show, but we're not a postgame show. And it frees us up a little bit to not have to prep anyone for the game or rehash highlights. Um, and that's not a knock on shows that are when I'm watching those shows, that's what I want from those shows. I want to know what happened that night. Um, if I'm watching a postgame show, it's exactly what I want. Um, but since we are sort of in the middle of that 24 hour cycle, it frees us up to talk about more sort of the, the both the uh, both sides of the spectrum, the fluffier parts of the NBA that I think are so fun and and really have become intrinsic to the league, but then also some of the more serious, nerdy, hardcore, uh, big picture analytics debates and, and some of the real digging down details that you can get to when you're not trying to do something right around a game. All right. So one of the things that you do, uh, or how about this? One of the things that I, I think is really interesting about your show is that you get a ton of flexibility to go into commentary. When I say you, I mean you, Rachel mm-hmm. Nichols, go into commentary, yeah. which, which can a lot of times be longer than what we think of traditionally on American sports studio television. What, what kind of freedom do you have in terms of when you decide you want to do a long commentary on something? Do you just walk in that morning and say, I want to do this? Or how does that, how does that work outside of what 
you know, the show's format traditionally is you have guests, you, you're the host, you interact with them. Well, I think we baked it into the show right from the start and really baked it into me returning to ESPN from TNT. Um, I've said this a bunch before. I loved being a TNT. I, I just loved it. Um, I love the people, uh, most of all. I mean, they're just incredible, fun, genuine, smart people to work with. I love the system. Um, I love being at the games I was at. Uh, I loved a lot of the opportunities to cross with Turner and the work I got to do on CNN and CNN International. So I was really happy there and was not intending to leave and um, had, you know, mild sort of conversations with people. My old gig at ESPN, the way you do, um, where it was sort of, oh, we'd love you back. And I kept sort of being like, well, I'm, I'm really happy uh, where I am. And it wasn't until really coming into the last moment uh, of when I was going to sort of resign and, and be with TNT again, that John Skipper and Connor Shell and, and Kevin Wilde came to me with, hey, we want to do a daily show. We want you to host it. And that was such a great opportunity and something that there really wasn't the real estate for at TNT with the way uh, their programming hours work. And baked into that, though, was it was really important to me that if I came and did this, it was going to be that I was going to be not a Vanna White character, right? Because any TV show like this, there's a real range, and, and there's, there's a lot of different variations, but all the way at one end of the spectrum is the host sort of introing a topic and then turning to what is usually the men on the set and right. saying, so what do you guys think, right? And I didn't want to be in that position for a lot of reasons, uh, most of all that I've covered and been around the NBA for 20 years, and I've certainly earned as much of a right to an opinion as, say, a Zach Lowe or Adrian Wojnarowski or uh, Brian Windhorst or any of the guys who are asked to do that on our air, or Ramona Shelburne. So, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that baked into the show was more of a PTI style um, or first take style, not in terms of the debate of first take, but I guess PTI is a better example, that everybody on the show gives their opinion. So it's not like Tony is the host and Mike gives his opinion or Mike's the host and Tony gives his opinion. They both intro topics, but they also both in that intro even often give their opinion and then certainly are part of the discussion going forward. And I think that's what we wanted to set up the whole time coming in to do this show is an important part of me agreeing to do the show. So it's never been a point of contention since then because, you know, it was part of the part of the, the deal and, and what they genuinely wanted from me coming in. And that's the other side of the equation is it's not like I had to bully anyone into that, that John Skipper and Connor Shell and Kevin were enthusiastic about that. And that makes you feel good when people value what you think you bring to the table. Rachel, before we continue on the jump, I do want to ask you this because I think you're, um, you're a bit of a pioneer here. Why in 2018 do we still see so many studio shows where if there is a woman who is a regular or full-time on that show, her job is to moderate or her job is to be in the middle of two men, as you said, either debating or opining. It is rare to see a woman in sports television in your position. There are some, and Katie Nolan obviously hosts her own show on ESPN+. Plus. But by and large, the setup still is if a woman is on a full-time panel, it's the woman as the quote-unquote host or moderator, and when it comes to the opinions— or the opinionization of the show, it is the men who offer the opinions? I mean, I just think it's, it's sort of the, the wheels of progress, right? 
So it, it used to be, and we all know this, right? It used to be that there were no women involved in, in sports reporting on TV to any real way. Then you had, you know, few scattered women on the sidelines, right? Then you had sort of them move into the studio in different roles. Um, then, you know, it was a big breakthrough just to have women host a lot of these shows, right? I mean, there was a time where that was considered heresy. Um, then you had women hosting, but maybe, again, more in the what I like to call the Vanna White kind of, um, okay, guys, what do you think? Um, and, and by the way, that's not a job without a lot of skill. And I think that anyone who does that job by itself, um, male or female, should get a little bit more credit. It's kind of the way I always felt about sideline reporting. And you and I have talked about this in the past. It drives me crazy when people are like, oh, well, they just stick women in the sideline reporting jobs. And I said, okay, well, how they deal with women is a whole separate conversation. But let's not take a shot at the sideline reporting jobs. Um, and, and in the same breath, moderating is a, is a whole skill, too. I mean, people get paid a lot of money uh, professionally to moderate panels and, and corporate gigs and things like that. So that's a whole job. And, and it's a job that people can either be good at or bad at. It just wasn't at this point in my career what I wanted to be doing. Um, and that's OK, too. You think progress is fast enough in terms of the wheels of change, as you mentioned? I mean, I would say both across the country and in sports journalism and in journalism in general, I think the people who would be the beneficiaries of that progress would always like it to be faster. Um, but I do like to recognize the fact that progress is being made. I think personally, I think it's a little, uh, you know, to, to not even acknowledge the fact that things are better than they used to be is looking a gift horse in the mouth a little bit. Fair enough. You, um, your show is not afraid to be smart. And I think you guys assume that your audience is bright enough to examine certain NBA topics. Who do you imagine is watching the jump? I think people who really love basketball watch the show. And and fortunately, it's a wide range of people who fall into that. It might be someone who only watches games occasionally or is only familiar with sort of the surface issues or players, or it might be people who are hardcore fans. But what's fun about knowing that the people who are watching are people who like the game is that you can then talk to sort of the most educated fan and have a conversation on that level, and that people who aren't as educated but still really love basketball are happy to go try to catch up, right? So I think where you get into a dangerous zone is if you're doing a more generalist sports show and you have to cover a bunch of topics, and you might have a segment of that show where you're hitting a sport that just doesn't happen to be of interest to a chunk of the people watching. Like, say you're someone who doesn't like baseball or I'm picking that out of the air, whatever it is. Um, I think you have to be careful about how you present those segments because if you do get too nitty gritty, you can potentially just really turn some of those people off. I think in a show like The Jump or any sports specific show, if if you just don't like basketball, if you just don't like the NBA, there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to convince you to sit and and watch an NBA show every day for an hour. Right. So so those people aren't watching. So therefore, the only people watching are people who at least have a predisposition to want to like the game. And those people, I think, are excited if something comes up in conversation that either they, A, don't know and get, you know, get a little more information on, or B, sort of have to like, do a quick Google search or find out or look at their phone for a second. I, I think people like being challenged. I think people like the idea of catching up. And then the people who are big, hardcore NBA fans are, of course, our best audience um, and the most just fun to be able to get in deep and have a discussion with, I think, really smart people. I love the people we have on the show. I love sort of the group that's evolved with us. Um, and, and I think everyone sort of brings a different thing to the table. How much are you, uh, you know, when I look at the, the ratings for your show, 
you know, they'll float between 300,000 viewers, 350,000 viewers, maybe a little bit less on certain days, maybe a little bit more on certain days. How closely do you follow the viewership numbers and how, um, you know, how, how much in the weeds are you in terms of what your show is doing when it comes to viewership? Well, I follow the TV ratings to the extent that people above me seem to care about them, right? Because that's, we'd like to stay on the air. Yay. Um, <laughs> and, and sort of <laughs> um, uh, be meeting kind of larger goals. And, and we've been more than able to do that, to jump uh, in, a, in an era where, what do they say? You, you do this a lot more than I do. Flat is the new up. Flat is, that is right? the new up, right. Um, right. So we were not only up, but up double digits. Uh, for this, like, last spring, last season. So that's, I mean, if flat is the new up, and we're not just up, but way up, um, that's good. I will tell you, though, it, it, to me, it, it is less of an important number only because I have a personal bias, is that I don't watch most of my shows, most of the programming I consume, to use one of those, like, ratings words, right, um, in, in live-time television. I mean, I can I can think of almost nothing that I watch in lifetime television. So I watch almost everything either on my phone, on the computer, um, on my DVR, and I know that ratings don't really take that stuff into account in the same way. And I do know that when you take those kinds of things into account, um, we are in the top ESPN programs on YouTube. We are the top. We are in the top. And I'm talking about like top three or four of programs on the over the top sort of, uh, you know, uh, you can, you can get the replay on the app or on ESPN plus. So a lot of people watch us that way. Um, knowing we're among of all the shows ESPN does, we're in that like super elite top group in the way of consuming media that I personally consume media. That's where I sort of get excited because for me, that's where I watch TV. Rachel, are, is it, um, do you ever have frustration being in the time slot that you're in? On the one hand, I feel like it's a creative place to explore and to do cool things. On the other hand, there has to be a party that would be like, man, I would love to be on primetime. Or I would love to be um, the show that leads into one of ESPN's big games. I mean, I like the time we're on because of the creative freedom we get. And I think it would be a, a pretty different show if we were on sort of around the game. Because, again, you know think you do need you legitimately need to be a pregame show or post game show if you are a pregame or post game show i mean that's that's part of the gig right with that with that slot and part of it is sort of to pregame is preparing and goosing up programming for the game and post game is, is sort of going over what just happened so i'm not sure i'd want our show to change as much as it would have to be if it was in one of those slots um i think again i mean part of this, this is part of sort of my bias and is that I think people watch TV at all different times. I just don't feel that me or the people I know tend to watch things when they are on. So since to me that is the current reality, that change has already happened, um, I would love sometimes for the sort of uh, media critic or sort of public sphere conversation to catch up to that a little bit because I think there is a perception out there of, oh, well, if it's not in prime time, then it's not as important in some way. And I just don't think TV work programming works that way anymore. I mean, and again, maybe I'm an outlier in how I consume my media, but to me, I just don't watch things in the time that they're on TV 
So it's hard for me to then ascribe to a system where the time that you're on TV is the end-all, be-all on how important you are. All right, so let me ask you this. Um, So this is sort of an internal thing, and I realize you probably have to be a little bit diplomatic here, but there are a lot of people who are part of NBA consumption or NBA content, I should say, at ESPN. Uh, Countdown is considered, I think, the network's de facto studio show, given the placement of where it airs. That's that's not to say it is the best studio show, but by by definition of what where it airs, that is sure to be your de facto studio show for a network. So how do you advocate for the jump to get more um, external push, to get more internal push without coming off like you're a, you know, like a, you're a, a bad teammate or you're, um, you're pushing your stuff and your show above others. Oh, I mean, gosh, I hope countdown is really important because I, cause I'm a part of countdown too. <laughs> yeah. I hope that doesn't change. Um, I, I, um, I do, uh, the, the majority of, sit, of the sit down interviews for countdown. That's the sort of defined role of my job here. Um, and, and I also, uh, sub in and host the show when Michelle isn't around. So, um, I, I hope that show gets a lot of push continuously and, and a lot of good pub and a lot of internal and external push. Cause, uh, you know, we're, we're very much a mix here and, um, and, uh, I consider myself completely part of that team. So it never feels adversarial. It c- couldn't feel adversarial to me cause I wouldn't know which Jersey to put on at any given time. And in terms of external or internal push, we get great push. I, that's never a concern of mine. Uh, you know Ben Cafardo and ESPN PR, um, who uh, you love. I, I know you uh, have done a great job of familiarizing your listeners with the various ins and outs of the different people who work in ESPN PR. Ben has been exceptional to us uh, about sending out daily to uh, different media, you know, Bleacher Report or, or, or aggregator, other aggregators, and then also the specific media in whatever topics we're talking about today. So if we're doing a bold topic, Chicago media or Celtics topic, Boston media, um, he sends things out every day to sort of show, oh, here's what the jump is doing. And here's a clip that you guys might want to pick up and talk about. Um, we get a ton of press coverage that's been awesome. Um, our, we get a clips package that goes around ESPN and the jump is always well represented and, um, you know, really well spoken of. And I mean, I couldn't internally, there's, there's all sorts of great internal stuff that goes in our internal memos and I internal feedback I get from everyone from the top, Bob Iger and Jimmy Pitaro to all the way down to the, the PAs who also his opinion really matters to me. Um, I just couldn't be happier with the push we get on both of those fronts. And I'm psyched about it. I hope it continues for the jump. But, boy, I hope it continues for Countdown, too, because that's that's also an important part of my gig as I see it. Look at you going all Kofi Annan, basically. United Nations uh, I mean, head on everybody. I wow. can't. I can't. What are you running in 2020? <laughs> I'm not, but I can't. I mean, it, it, it's it's. To me, it's a weird paradigm to set up because I, I mean, I have a three-year track record now since I've been back, almost three-year track record since I've been back at ESPN of, of being heavily involved in Countdown. It would be hard for me to sit there and say that I don't, I see that, I see that as an adversary relationship. No, it's I understand. that I do and work on almost every, there's some aspect of my job almost every day that I'm doing that's also work for Countdown. So it would be very weird for me to feel like that was a different or other quote-unquote thing. Long-term, um what kind of like sort of longitudinal um, life can the jump have? I mean, do you see the show as something that could last 10, 20 years? Uh, do you think you would get the itch to maybe go back and be part of some kind of live 
broadcast. I, I realize that in television, it's crazy not to think in, you know, three-year increments, four-year increments. But ideally, what what kind of run do you see the show having? We're having so much fun on this show, which is, I think, cool that it's obvious when you watch this on TV. So nobody thinks it's like just sort of the thing you say. But one of, that's one of the biggest feedback we get is that sort of, oh, it's fun watching. You guys are having fun. We want to be in on it. Um, and and when it feels like that, I've worked in enough places at this point to know that's really special, right? That's something you want to preserve. <laughs> there, there are jobs I've had and gigs I've had where it's sort of you go home every day and you're like, oh, I'm stressed. I'm tired. I don't want to be doing this right now. Um, this job doesn't feel like that. This job feels like getting to come you know, play with your friends every day. And, and what makes me excited about that is that was kind of the premise for the show, the elevator pitch um, I gave sort of when we were actually getting down to the business of creating the show. Um, once I sort of got back in the building and, and sort of had to sort of figure out, okay, we're going to do a show. What's that going to look like? What's that going to feel like? Um, was, hey, I, I want it to feel like sitting around talking basketball with your friends, but what if one of your friends was Tracy McGrady? because Tracy was sort of the first big analyst we were starting with. And that idea uh, is something that's been sort of a guiding principle for the show. And the fact that we've been able to keep it that way has been so great that for me, I, I don't want to kind of say, oh, I, I, when's the time you want to stop sitting around talking basketball with your friends? <laughs> so for me, I'd like this to go on as, as long as it can. And that doesn't mean that I won't also want to stretch and do some other things. And that's why, again, I mean, with that last answer, when we're talking about countdown, like I, I take the stuff I do for countdown really seriously. It's not like some extra things like to me, stretching and doing other things and getting to do those sit down interviews. It's, it's a big deal to me. I love doing that. Um, so I will want to continue to stretch and do other things while I'm at ESPN. Um, but, I love the home that I have on the jump. I love getting to have created that and feeling like the group of people that I work with, uh, the producers. I know that you, you uh, are, are like me in thinking that, that the producers who work on the show are, are just super. Yeah. Very talented. It, it's just amazing. To, it's, it's amazing to me that we don't talk about this stuff more. And on our show, we do talk about it. Um, the show, regulars who watch the show know we have producer Danny, we have producer Steve, producer Bodmer, um, you know, people who have been with the show since the very start and have, have w created the language of this show. Um, and I wouldn't want to ever stop working with those guys. They're just, you know, we've made this cool thing and we get to take it out, you know, for a spin every day. And we've had great people join us along the way too. And it's just been, it's, it's been such a great experience that, that I'm sure there will be a time I want to raise cactuses or something, but at this point I can't see it. What has management told you about the future of the jump, Rachel, uh, in as much as you can talk about that publicly, both short term and long term, whether it's uh, Jimmy Pitaro or Connor Shell or whoever? Have they said, you know, we like what you're doing. We think you're doing a great job. We see this lasting for a number of years. Can you give me any just sort of insight into what they've said to you in terms of um, in terms of heading forward? Yeah, I mean, we haven't had any big sort of planning conversation about how long the show would run. All, the only feedback we've ever gotten has been super positive, which is cool and something that may not always be the case. But, boy, it's nice now that it's happening. Um, you know, the show, and that's, that, that's easy to see why. The show has been super well-received, both in the league office and among the teams and among NBA fans, and we're grateful for that. We're aware of that every day, and we feel responsible to all those segments, and, and that's why we try to, you know, when you say, oh, it's a smart show, basketball show, or it's an informed basketball show, we take that really seriously, right? We, we, we try really hard to make sure that we're being 
honest and straightforward about what we put on the air and, and responsible to those groups of people every day. Um, so I think ESPN has been happy with that. I think ESPN has been happy. The ratings have continued to climb. I mean, we are a show that when it started, we were on just during the season and the show did so well that they made it year round. And then the show did so well that they made it from a half hour to an hour. So we haven't gotten some big sort of long-term 10 year plan from the bosses on, on what they see for the show, but certainly the way everyone has talked about it to us has been has been nothing but positive, and we're going to keep working to make sure that that continues. All right, I want to um, spend the last segment here with you on a couple of very high-profile interviews that you've done and to get, try to get some insight into that. How did the Jimmy Butler interview come about? Jimmy, you know, I, I've been interviewing Jimmy off and on since his rookie year. Uh, this is one of the cool things for me about having had so many jobs at this point um, covering the NBA. Uh, I've been... Uh, you know, everything from newspaper writer covering the NBA. Uh, I've been a sports center reporter covering the NBA. I've been a sideline reporter covering the NBA. Uh, I'm now the host of a show covering the NBA all throughout. I, I've done these kind of big sit-down interviews, but I've also done small sort of those things that you do either on the court right after the game where, you know, the two people are standing there and you just do the, the quick three questions, or maybe you do that on the way into the stadium or that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I've sort of done all the different things, which has given me a really great layered relationship with a lot of people around the league. And Jimmy is someone who, you know, I've had one of those great layered relationships with and a bunch of the different gigs I've had. And, you know, certainly when things flared up with him this summer, I checked in with him, Hey, what's going on? And and we talked and he kind of explained to me where he was coming from. And I think those kinds of conversations are always really important for me to have um, just sort of off the record, casual conversations with players and teams and executives. I try to do that a lot. Um, because I'm on TV for an hour a day talking about these guys. So it's important to me that I've talked to them, right? If I'm going to comment on Jimmy Butler in a situation in Minnesota, I want to have had the conversation with Jimmy Butler so I can understand at least a little more where he's coming from. I want to talk to people and and find out where management is coming from and and sort of have the whole scope. So I do stuff like that all the time. Um, And as we were talking and, uh, you know, his situation in Minnesota dragged out and it was obvious he was not, in training camp, um, we started talking about, hey, you know, when are you going to sort of, at some point you're going to talk publicly again, right? That's going to happen. It's not like Jimmy Butler's never going to speak publicly again. So at some point, when do you think you're going to do that? And would you like to do it in sort of the more controlled sit-down environment? And um, honestly, at one point when it looked like things with Minnesota were going a certain way, Jimmy was actually in Los Angeles for a week. And we thought he was going to actually come be on the show one day. That was sort of the original plan was, oh, come into the studio, come be on the show. And that sort of felt like the most organic thing. And we kind of had the beginnings of that set up. And then the trade conversations with Miami heated up. And he and his agent, and this was smart on their part, rightly felt like, hey, we're right in the middle of what feels like a trade to Miami. Jimmy randomly going on TV one day and just sort of talking on on a segment you know, might not be the smartest thing to interject into this. Like, let's let let's let everything develop for a minute. So we we sort of stood down from that. Then that following weekend, um, again, if you look at all the reporting of the awesome folks who've been kind of really on that story, um, it seemed like over that weekend there really was going to be a trade to Miami. I believe Woj reported that they had exchanged medicals, right? Which is often like, okay, that's the last step of a trade. Um, and then at the last minute, and so when that was happening, the conversation sort of back and forth was great. When you go to Miami, I'll shoot down there. We'll sit down, right? That was going to be the, the conversation. Um, and then the trade fell apart. 
and Jimmy and his agent kind of had to go back to the drawing board on everything, right? Okay, we, they really thought that Jimmy was getting traded to Miami. So, I mean, I think a lot of people thought that. So then it became, okay, what's our sort of next plan of attack here? And not really even in media, but just, you know, was Jimmy going to go back to training camp? Was he going to play with the team if there wasn't a trade? I mean, there's a lot of sort of much more important things for his career to figure out. If you're in the NBA, it's not like the NFL where the holdout, the way the holdouts work. If you're in the NBA and you miss regular season games, you're going to have to get someone who's better on the CBA than me. But I believe the, the sort of loose thing that the language says is that basically your free agency gets pushed forward. Basically, you can't hold out until you become a free agent. So if he had started to hold out from the regular season, the free agency that's so valuable to him that he's going to have this coming summer would have gotten pushed, right? So he really wasn't going to hold out. No one, no one does in the NBA. Um, so he kind of had to figure out how he's going to reintegrate into the team. Meanwhile, when he was back in Minnesota, as he has been open about saying, he was having conversations with Tom Thibodeau. And Tibbs, as we know, wanted Jimmy to come back and was pushing him, you know, come back to practice. You got to practice. You got to practice. You got to play. You got, you know, that kind of thing. Tibbs has been consistent that he thinks they can work all this out. And then Jimmy is an asset that he wants on the team until someone makes him a trade offer that he really feels is valuable. So all of that was going on, too. Right. So Jimmy was kind of in the stew of figuring out what he wanted to do. We had two potential sort of interview moments that windows that had been talked about and then passed. And then, um, you know, sort of as those days went by, there was, you know, the casual like, hey, are you ready to, to talk? You know, are you going to go back to practice? Are you going to do media after? Or are you going to, you know, what are we going to, what are you going to do? And, um, you know, the, the day before, at like seven o'clock at night, I think, was one of those conversations. And uh, sort of was like, okay, he's ready to go back. He's, he's, he's going to go to practice. He's, he wants to talk. But, as a lot of these guys do, they feel like if they really want to say something complicated, right? Why, why are you asking for a trade from a team, right? How has this gone down? What are your relationships with people on your team and, and in the locker room and things like that? Doing it in sort of this scrum environment um, where you're leaning up against a wall and there's 10 cameras in your face and people are asking you questions where one question doesn't necessarily follow the other question in terms of topic, right? Or, you can kind of start an answer and then get interrupted or, or sidetracked. And so maybe you didn't say the whole thing that you wanted to say. I think a lot of athletes feel like sitting down and, and having an interview is probably the way they want to get that stuff out first. So that wasn't unusual either. And the fact that Jimmy wanted to do it wasn't unusual. Um, and that he wanted to do it on the first day he returned to practice so that he could then kind of fall into what he assumed was going to be the regular pattern of practice, media scrum, all of that. Um, wasn't unusual either. All of that stuff felt really regular. Um, what became unusual was, uh, you know, he went to practice and, and just, as he said, I let all my emotions out, right? He just sort of, everything about Jimmy is very upfront and, and he just was very, <laughs> very emotional and uh, very on the surface with everybody about how he was feeling. And it was a very volatile practice. Um, and we were set up to do the interview at his house. And I didn't know any of this was going on as it was happening because I was flying. I was on an airplane, um, but started to get, you know, I, I see Woj's just tweets just like everyone else and started to get sort of the trickle in of what was going on. And uh, as we were setting up for the interview, you know, Jimmy came in and, and <laughs> was like, oh, boy, you know, it, you lit the fuse there. And uh, we sat down and, and we had the conversation on camera that everyone has seen. So. That, that's sort of how that all developed and is kind of 
a lot of that is very typical of how these things do develop. I just think because of the way step 12 of maybe, however, step 13 of the 13-step journey was unusual is why it sort of felt maybe more unusual. But the first 11 or 12 steps was the same thing that happens in almost every one of these situations. Rachel, any of us, um, if we're being honest, would have taken the interview with Jimmy Butler. If you say you wouldn't, you're in, in, the, in the sports media, you're just not being honest. That said, is there any part of you that has to weigh that Butler is using you for his purposes of getting his message out to the public as to what he wants in terms of contractual negotiations or... Do you think that is just sort of part of the larger ecosystem of sports media and athletes? Oh, gosh, I push way back against the paradigm, not the not the the which side I fell on, but just that whole paradigm I pushed back on. I when is it when it, when is it bad to have somebody be able to get out what they think and, and what's going on with them and their sides? Like, how is that? quote? I mean, I, I think that within the interview, if people aren't held accountable that's when you have a problem, right? So if an interview becomes fluffy or if, you know, the two sort of most, I've done a bunch of interviews lately. Um, the interview I did with Anthony Davis that aired last week where he comes out in the opening answer and says, I think I'm the best player in the league. And he gives sort of his general reason about why he thinks he's the best player in the NBA. I could have just let that pass. Instead, I said, you want to tell me why you think you're better than LeBron James or Kevin Durant? <laughs> If within the interview, you don't hold people accountable, that's where maybe, okay, then you have to say is someone, I don't know, what did you say, using you to get their message or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, I interviewed Mark Cuban and obviously I, I think held him accountable to what was going on in that situation um, with Jimmy Butler. He says, oh, it's not about the money. Well, okay, well, then what is it about exactly? You know, that kind of thing. So there are... Um, you know, he says, oh, there was a teammate I, I yelled at. I said, well, which teammate? You know, it's, it's one of those things. We're not letting people just sort of say what they want to say and not, not give the answers that people really want to hear. That's the part of the interview where I think, you know, I, I can evaluate myself. Did I do a good enough job with that or not? But should I have done the interview to let someone say what they're trying to get? I mean, gosh, we're in the information business, aren't we? I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm always mystified by that. I appreciate you answering that. Uh, let's finish up with this. Why, um, why do you, outside of the fact that you're clearly a very respected person in NBA journalism circles and you have a relationship um, with this person because of your years on the beat, I just want to, I'm asking this totally open-ended. Why do you think Mark mm-hmm. Cuban agreed to go on with you? Why do you think that was the forum he wanted to um he wanted to address the, um, the the sexual misconduct that had happened in his organization. And again, I think universally, I thought you did a fantastic job. It was not only compelling, I, I thought it was uh, journalistically really, really impressive. But one of the things I thought about was, you know, Cuban made a decision to go on your show. And I wanted to ask you why mm-hmm. you thought that was his decision. I think it's a little bit of the continuation of the answer from the last question is sort of... Um, I think that when it, I think it's a, it's a pretty important part of any interview I do that I am definitely a hundred percent acknowledging. I would say to anyone who sits down with me, I hope this is good for you too, right? I am not looking in any of these interviews to ruin someone or to get them or anything like that. I, I don't. I'm not a fan of that, and I don't think 
you get good answers or good information from that. I'm a big fan of finding out stuff. I'm a very curious person, and I got into this job basically because I'm a very curious person. I want to know everything about everything. And um, to me, the best interviews I like watching and doing are the interviews where you find stuff out. And I think that if you go into interviews in, in a way that, that isn't the primary goal isn't information, that's a bad interview for me. That, that's not the kind of interview I want to do. So I think step one is that people who sit down with me understand that that's the goal I have. And, and there's two sides of that, right? So the goal I have on the one hand is I'm not going to go out of my way to embarrass you just to score points so I can be on TV embarrassing someone. I just don't, don't ever want to do that. Um, so I think there's a comfort level uh, of people who at this point have enough of a reputation in the business that and people have dealt with me, frankly, for over the years to know that they're not walking into that. And I think that matters to people, especially if they're going through a difficult time. Um, on the flip side, they know that I'm going to want the information. So I'm going to ask real questions, right? I'm not going to, no matter who it is, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you real questions. And if you don't answer that question, I'm going to follow it up and, and ask it again in a different way. And I believe 100% that people who are smart about their public relations should be looking for that kind of interview. I really do. And I think that goes if it's Jimmy Butler, I think if it's Mark Cuban, I think if it's Anthony Davis trying to make more of a, you know, change what level of elitism people think, elite, you know, level people think he is in the NBA. Um, you know, uh, later today, you'll see on the jump, uh, Carmelo Anthony gave me his first sit-down interview since joining the Rockets. And we're going to air that today leading into tonight's game against Houston. Um, I am a big believer that if you are a subject wanting to advance your case in the public sphere, you should be looking for someone to do that interview who is, on the one hand, not going to try to gotcha you, right? But on the other hand, is actually going to ask the questions. Because I think when people do the, like, super fluffy interviews or even the sort of one-sided um, I want to be careful how I say this because I actually do really like um, Uninterrupted and the Players Tribune for what they, they they sort of let athletes talk in a way that we haven't seen. And I get a ton of my cool information from those outlets, so I really love those outlets. But they're good for, for certain things. Um, if you're in a really controversial position um, and you did an outlet um, where it was just completely one-sided without a journalist kind of being involved – and you don't answer the big questions everyone else out there is asking, they're going to keep asking those questions. So, you know, if somebody changes teams and decides they, and that's a controversial decision, and instead of sitting down for an interview with someone who's going to ask them real questions about why they changed teams, um, and instead they just do sort of one of those, you know, self, self things of this is why, and, you know, my letter or my whatever, um, that doesn't stop the questions from being asked. Like, you can't control the narrative that way. So I think what actually stops the questions from being asked is answering them, right? So in the Mark, this circles back to Mark Cuban in that I think Mark Cuban felt he was going to get an interview where I wasn't going to hammer him or gotcha him in an unfair way. And I feel good about when I look back over that interview. I don't think I did that. Um, but also where I asked the real questions that people would want the answers to and then he answered them, and he gets a lot of credit for that in my eyes because we live in a time where transparency and accountability are not sort of the benchmarks or hallmarks of a lot of our public figures. Um, so I think he gets a lot of credit for that, and I think it was good for him in the public relations sphere to have done that. I believe that all the time, and I believe that happened in this case because we have seen 
similar scandals, quote unquote, um, go on for months. Right. I mean, the, I don't I, I didn't I can't say I followed with the Urban Meyer. I can't tell you day for day what the media coverage was or which questions he answered on which day. But it felt to me as someone who just consumes media that the Urban Meyer situation stretched for a long time, in part because we didn't get a lot of clear answers to the questions we had. Right. Mark Cuban sat down gave a lot of clear answers to the questions that were out there. You might not like all of his answers, but he answered them. And then after two or three days, people weren't asking those questions anymore. They didn't have to. He gave the answer. And, and to me, is from a public relations standpoint, and this goes again, this isn't just in a scandal. This goes for any person. I think that it, I, my pitch and sell to you is it's better to sit down and do something not fluffy and answer the questions for real and, and, and be in an environment where you are sort of answering what's the big things out there in the public narrative. And I just think that, that, that fans and viewers and readers, I think they appreciate that a lot more as opposed to letting things kind of dangle. And so I would advocate to anyone that that's a smart play. I certainly advocated that to Mark. And I will continue to advocate that to anyone else who sort of finds himself in a situation where there's big public questions about them. All right, let's finish up with a basketball question. We'll end it on a on a on a on court note. Uh, LeBron James is in your backyard this year. You um you have a long time relationship with him. You've interviewed him many many times, and I know there's mutual respect between both of you. Now you will see him up close, essentially the entire season. Um, what do you? It, the Lakers are a fascinating team because it's very hard to kind of extrapolate what they're going to be this year with LeBron and a lot of young players with talent, but but young players all the same. If you had to guess today, what do you expect from the Lakers this year? I think the Lakers are going to be a lot of fun this year. <laughs> um, I, I think it's one of the cool things about the NBA right now, and it's one of the reasons ratings are up so much, and, and uh, you know, it just seems like an exciting, buzzy time in the sport, right? Maybe that's because I'm in the middle of it, but it feels like that even from the outside. Um for a sport that is, in the one hand, in the middle of a dynasty, right, the Golden State Warriors, certainly they've won three of the last four titles, um, it is also a sport where you really don't know what is going to happen a lot of the time. So even, say, last year, uh, when people, oh, the Warriors and Cavs are going to be in the finals again, yes, the Warriors and Cavs were in the finals again. But how both of those teams got there was completely unexpected on so many counts. And all the things that happened in the middle of that season to a bunch of different teams, whether it was what went on with the Rockets or went on with, with, I mean, look, anybody who tells me they could have predicted the tunnel gate scandal between the Rockets and Clippers, right? And the secret tunnel and all of that fun sort of blown out of proportion stuff or the, the more serious, but equally weird Twitter controversy with Brian Colangelo and the 76ers or all the different things in the NBA that, I mean, there, there's just so much craziness and so many stories. Um, you know, I could list 10 and still have 10, 10 more left over. People would be like, how could you not say those were the 10 craziest stories in the NBA? And I think that that's what's so fun about the league right now is there's so much stuff where no one's going to know what happens on the court and off the court. And the Lakers, both on the court and off the court, are going to fall into that this year. We have no idea what this team is going to be, how well it's going to work. Is the on-court stuff going to work? Is LeBron going to be as patient as he says that he wants to be right now? 
Um, is Lance, which Lance Stevenson are we getting? Um, you know, sort of how is the West going to shake out and who makes the playoffs? I mean, what happens with Jimmy Butler in Minnesota is a little bit of a butterfly effect to a lot of the teams that are in that second, you know, four through eight, four through 10 spot in the West of who makes the playoffs and who doesn't. Um, I, I'm excited because, you know, anytime someone like LeBron makes a big move like this, it just creates more variables. And I think variables are part of what sells the NBA. Rachel Nichols is the host of ESPN's The Jump, as she mentioned on this podcast. She is a big part of NBA Countdown. We don't want any strife here. It's everybody's in love on uh, NBA you know, Countdown. We're big, teammates, one, man. One big team. I like team. the people I work with. Do you like the people you work with? Oh, I love the people at The Athletic and at uh, Sportsnet 590. Fantastic people. Absolutely. Okay. Is, that, is that fake and the, or is that for, real? And, for, and for the 12 people... From those organizations that'll listen to this, I want to give a shout out to, uh, to uh, you know, <laughs> well, I, in all, I, no, the athletic, the athletic, is that, fake? is that fake or real? No, no, it's real. No, uh, in all, in in all seriousness and no bullshit aside, the athletic um, has been incredible in terms of giving me and I'm sure every other person who works there creative freedom. And Rachel, you've been to Toronto enough to know how great the people are up here. Rogers, love Rogers Toronto. could not have been you could know, not be better for me. I mean, they've literally helped me move to a new country. So no matter how this. Um, how this adventure ends, I, I can never con- honestly repay them. They, they've been incredible, and that really more speaks to just the people in the city than, than anything else. You've been to Toronto many times. You, well, you're you very familiar with I Canadian say, I'm, a, I'm a former NHL beat writer. That's I was right. a Washington Capitals beat writer at the Washington Post for three years. I spent much time in Canada and Toronto, and I'm a big fan. And and I would just say, yeah, I, I believe you when you say you like Toronto. I believe you when you say you like the athletic. It doesn't all have to be, like, fake for the media, right? Like, like, sometimes you dig the people in the situation you're in. I genuinely dig it here. We're having a lot of fun. It's true. Yeah, I mean, there's enough people I really hate in the media, but no, the people I work with uh, are, just don't happen <laughs> to be them. All right, Rachel, listen, thank you for giving us a lot of time. I know you're, uh, you know, it's 10 o'clock where you are in L.A., so you have a show to get ready for. Have a great NBA season. Um, it is absolutely the most fun sport to watch, and people will be checking out The Jump for sure, one of the, uh, if not the, smartest basketball show on television and uh, continued success. Thanks uh, for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. All right. My thanks to uh, Rachel Nichols. And now let's head to Candace Parker, now of NBA TV and Turner Sports. All right. My next guest is a very familiar person when it comes to the world of basketball. Candace Parker has joined the NBA on TNT and NBA TV as an analyst. She will also work as I believe a studio analyst during the NCAA tournament. The job that she has for Turner, um, and she'll talk about this, but she's going to be part of the players-only studio team, which has become a pretty popular thing where former players uh, basically broadcast the game. You don't have a traditional quote-unquote broadcaster. You have former players who serve as the broadcast team, and they give you a player perspective of the game. She'll also be doing NBA TV's, NBA TV's game time, and, uh, and she has signed full-time. With Turner, so you're, it's going to be a voice you're going to hear if you're a basketball fan for the next number of years as she also continues in the WNBA. And Candace Parker joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Candace, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right, so I want to start here. Um, you're still playing. You're still one of the best women's basketball players in the world. So why is this the right time to p- pursue broadcasting on what is basically a full-time basis outside of your playing career? Fortunately... You know, for the WNBA, it's in the summer, and you know they look at that as our main season. But our main season is overseas. 
you know, I played 10 years overseas. I've played in Russia. I've played in China. I've played in Turkey. And um, at this point in time, when I was looking at the off season, anybody that knows me knows my daughter comes first. And every year since she's been born, I've had to uproot her, you know, in some way, shape or form and take her to a foreign country. And this year, it just, you know, it's about her. And I felt that at this point in my career, I'm able to make this choice to kind of transition into what I want to do after, you know, the ball stops bouncing. Uh, your daughter's Layla, is that right? My daughter's Layla, yes. Nine years old. Right, nice. Her passport must be incredible, given basically <laughs> yeah, all the country she's, stuff. Uh, she's had quite a few st- uh, stamps in her passport, quite a few visas. Um, you know, her first her first preschool was Russia, was in Russia, and wow. she, she learned the language pretty well, so it was very unique to see a, you know, a black kid speaking Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's great. World traveler uh, at nine years old. All right. So if you can, um, what in terms of your Turner schedule, give us roughly what the schedule is uh, from the start of October to when you would theoretically go to WNBA training camp. Well, with Turner, I I signed in, you know, through 2019. And, um, you know, I'm very excited to be a part of this because last year I, I came on late. You know, I came on after All-Star break and was able to cover some March Madness. But this time I'm I'm going to start, you know, this, this coming weekend. You know, every Sunday and Monday I'll be in studio with NBA TV on through January. And then when players only starts mid to end of January, I'll be on Wednesday nights with that. I'll be covering the, you know, NCAA tournament as I did last year. Um you know, and then going forward, I'll cover a couple TNT NBA night shows um, in March. So I'm I'm extremely excited to to start this new passion of mine. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to to be paid to play a game that I love, and now to be able to do that and talk about it. I mean, there's not many people that are passionate about one career, let alone you know two. This is always I've talked to a lot of athletes, obviously, who've become broadcasters, and this is always interesting to me. You are someone who's basically being interviewed by the press, I'm going to guess, since you were 14, 15 <laughs> years old. Whenever, whenever it sort of for you started um, uh, that you were going to be a top player in high school and actually prior to Tennessee. So how much, how much experience do you feel you got in terms of answering questions, in terms of being on camera prior to this experience versus whatever, let's say, like the people at Turner – are working you with are working with you about presentation, how to get your thought in a short amount of time. I I think pe- listeners would be interested in like how much can you really learn prior to let's say walking into a formal studio just by being a high profile athlete being interviewed. I think you learn. Last year was a learning experience for me. I mean, I've been a vet in the WBA for a while, and I was a rookie last year. You know, and I went out and I made mistakes. But the thing about Turner is they they welcome that as long as you're open to learning and getting better. And everybody thinks broadcasting is about what you're saying, but it's also listening. And in the in March Madness, when you don't know everybody as well as you you would with the NBA, because you don't see you know the the smallest team that's coming to play uh, in the round of 32, you have to listen. And you can make remarks off of that. And then once you see them play, I mean, natural instincts kind of kick in and you're able to to have your opinion and come from the athlete point of view. But I just think for me, the first year was just about listening and, and growing and taking advice and, 
using the tools that I had with speaking, you know, to media since, you know, from when I was a young age and, and going about it that way. But, you know, it's, it's about practice and putting the time in. I mean, everybody knows that that's how you get good at anything. And so to think that I'm going to be the best at it and not make any mistakes, you know, my first or second year is, is impossible. Yeah. Barkley's been getting away with the NCAA studio analyst for a long time, Candace. You'll be, you'll be okay. I just do a little studying. You can get away with a couple jokes. Um, why was it important for you, if, if this is indeed true, but it seems like it is, to position yourself as someone um, broadcasting or working in the NBA as opposed to women's basketball? A lot of times people in your position uh, will be uh, either pushed by networks or maybe even agents to be like, okay, start off in women's basketball. This is where you're an expert in. This is where the audience knows you. But in your case, you're going to start off in the NBA, which I think is much smarter because it means that you can go anywhere. But was that important to you or was that a specific thing to you to not necessarily get into the women's basketball broadcasting and position yourself doing the NBA? You know, growing up, I was a student of the game. My dad made sure that I knew who Dr. J was. He made sure I knew who the Iceman was. I watched Chris Webber in college at Michigan. I watched Jalen Rose. I wanted to be the Fab Five. I went out and got black socks. I grew up not necessarily until I was 11 years old, I didn't have female role models to look up to. I didn't have female athlete role models, let me clarify. So I know the NBA and the history of the game inside and out. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of it. And so when this opportunity presented itself, it wasn't me choosing, you know, not wanting to do WNBA or not wanting to do women's basketball. It was me choosing NBA. And I think... I'm, I'm something, it's something that I'm extremely passionate about and I like to do stuff that hasn't been done before. And just the way that I was raised and what I try to strive to be is, you know, when someone tells me you can't do this, you know, there's never been, or there never will be, that makes me want to do it that much more. And so that just made this opportunity more intriguing to be a part of, you know, Turner who I've watched night in and night out, you know, to be a part of that broadcast team. Candice, um, you're well aware if you sort of live in the United States right now, there is a lot of sexism in the country that goes far beyond sports. When it comes to basketball, there are still men who have an issue with women working in NBA broadcasting. Doris Burke probably gets, for as much praise as Doris Burke gets, she will tell you that if she occasionally checks her Twitter mentions, there's so much shit running down the pike. Jessica Mendoza is someone who has a very high-profile position at ESPN um, in the booth and just gets a ton of criticism uh, online. It's one thing to be criticized for performance. It's another thing to be criticized for gender, and a lot of times both Doris and Jessica face that. I wonder if you have spoken to any high-profile women in broadcasting to learn about what is like sort of the underbelly of being a public figure in broadcasting. You're certainly going to get praise, but you also know, especially if you go online, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to shit on you just because you're a woman. It's funny. I I was a part of a panel a couple weeks ago with Jessica Mendoza, and we had a chance to talk and discuss and, you know, talk in front of, you know, the audience and then, you know, behind closed doors. And, you know, one thing I don't think people understand about growing up in sports and playing sports and competing since you were a young age and not wanting to lose is we're okay with being hated on. 
our entire life. I mean, I've gone into stadiums of 25,000 booing fans, and it just riles me up and makes me want to be better. So I think for me, when I'm looking at this opportunity to be a broadcaster, there's no way in life you're going to be able to please everybody. But I know when I when I start this career, I'm going to try to learn from the best and try to be the best that I can and not worry about everything else that I can't control. I mean, with change, it's uncomfortable for some people. It's hard. You know, it it, it really is difficult. I mean, look at our country. Look at what we've been through as a nation. It's difficult. Yep. But somebody, somebody has to do it. And at this point, I'm passionate about basketball. And, you know, for, for everybody that doesn't like me, um, that's that's okay. That's their opinion. But I hope that we're kind of bringing change about. How, um, at least from the pre- your previous experiences and obviously heading forward as you start this week, what will be your preparation and process to prepare to be on the air? Well, I, I watch basketball to begin with, so I don't think the watching of it is the issue. But I think when you watch as a casual fan, you kind of underestimate how much you have to know about the history of a team. And I'm not talking about Golden State Warriors. Everybody knows the history behind them. I'm a Bulls fan, so I know what, what transactions, trades, all that stuff. But, you know, the, the up-and-coming teams, why, you know, why, does Atlanta, why do the Atlanta Hawks have a conditional first-round pick? Is it to their benefit to win now? Why are they trading their vet? You know, you have to kind of look in-depth at those things. And so my preparation is just trying to learn, listen, read, take in, consume as much basketball as I can going into it. And then throughout the season, as the season unfolds, you're able to have your opinion on what's happening now. Do you, Candice, um, are there, is there, are there people in the profession who you at this point consider broadcasting mentors or are there, do you have people right now who you, uh, who you can talk shop with? And maybe those are just the people at Turner who you're going to see on a near, on the, you know, more of a daily basis than elsewhere. Well, everybody at Turner has been like my big brothers, honestly. Um, you know, Isaiah Thomas and and Chuck and Shaq and, you know, Kenny Smith, I would say Chris, Weber, Reggie. I could name everybody, honestly. Everybody at, at Turner has opened me, open arms, welcomed me, you know, to the family. And whatever I need, whatever questions I have, they're willing to kind of share with me. But I had an interesting moment uh, three years ago when I kind of decided – Broadcasting is something I'm. I want to try. I want. I'm interested in. I want to learn more about transitioning into the next phase of life. And Michael Strahan, I simply came out and asked him. You know, he was on. You know, Michael and Kelly at the time, and he was everywhere. Football, doing every every time you turn on the TV, you see Michael Strahan. And I asked him. I said, <laughs> "Right, it's true." And even now. I was like, what is your, what did you do? Because when he was a player, I would see him on television. And he said, I just started saying yes. When they would call me to do radio shows or they would call me to do, you know, come, come into the studio and dissect this game or this play. And he said and it was a Monday after a Sunday game. I got in the car and I, I did it. And he said, and it's paying off now because of all the opportunities. See, as, as athletes, everybody brings us stuff until it stops. But he said you have to kind of balance when people are bringing you things to say yes. And even when it's hard, it's difficult. Just do it if that's your, what your passion is. And so I think I've kind of tried to take his advice and, you know, follow in his footsteps. 
That's really interesting you say that, Candace, because I, um, I lived in New York for most of Michael Strahan's tenure with the Giants. And for the early part of his career, Michael Strahan was no media darling. He didn't mm-hmm. really talk a lot to the press. At times, it was very uh, uh, animus between him and beat writers. But at a certain point, especially later on in his career, he started, like you said, he started appearing more in New York, doing more local things. And he ended up, you know, a lot, uh, the the person I think people thought on the Giants who was going to be like the next Today Show host was Tiki Barber. But it turned yeah. out to be Michael Strahan, who you could probably make the argument has maybe had the greatest – uh, post career in broadcasting, because 100%. he's uh, been a crossover. St- he's a, he's a crossover star. He's not just a guy who went into the broadcasting booth and became like a Monday Night Football analyst. He's hosted morning shows, which is incredible. Um, from where he was, so that's I think that's really um, I think that's really smart advice from Strand. And it just strikes me, and just even in doing a little bit of research, Candace, in the last couple of years, I mean, you've done it. I see you doing conferences. I see you doing a ton of interviews. You're pretty active in terms of letting people inside your life on social media. Have you always been like that? Or is this something that even, let's say, in the last three or four years has changed a little bit and you're, you've been more open to new opportunities? I was not always like this. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you go through ups and downs in your life and you go through points where you realize how special this moment is and how important this moment could contribute to your future success or future stumbles. And I think I'm realizing how special and fortunate I am to be in Los Angeles and how special and fortunate I am to be in Los Angeles and be able to meet people and have relationships and establish ties and be out there. And in this day and age, you know, through social media, through digital, through television, through apps, you know, you have all these opportunities and you just have to to take hold of them. And fortunately this year I've had a team around me that has really pushed me to do more things and to, to be out there. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate and I really want to take advantage of, of everything that I can. I want to ask you just a, uh, a broad question. It goes, actually, before I ask that, uh, let me, let me ask this. You mentioned earlier that, uh, you're, you're with Turner through 2019, so that's essentially a one-year deal. Is that Are both of the entities looking at it like, let's see if this works out, and if it does, let's talk long-term afterwards? Or did you intentionally do that because you're still playing professionally and you still want options professionally beyond 2019 during the year? Well, I think it's both ways, but I personally am still playing basketball. And that's the thing. I, this isn't my retirement. I don't want this to be my retirement <laughs> announcement. Uh, I still enjoy playing. I still get that burn, that desire, that energy, that fire from playing basketball. And, you know, I'm 32 years old, and I know the ball isn't going to bounce forever, but it, you know, hopefully will bounce for a couple more years. So with that being said, yes, I would like to keep options open and, you know, my daughter is a huge part of that, as well as, you know, overseas is something that, you know, I hope is, you know, they can have opportunities that come up with overseas. But for right now, at this moment, you know, broadcasting is what what I'm meant to do. Candice, don't don't retire. Sue Bird is 59 years old. You can play another (laughs) 27 years. I'm telling you, I have my math. I know Sue for a while. I might have my math wrong there, but I know she's older than you. So, uh, yeah, don't give that up. Um, fine wine, like fine wine. <laughs> you're, uh, you've always been um, 
very transparent about how important your daughter is to your schedule. And um, in reading about you, I saw, um, I don't know if it was Alana Beard or Christy Tolliver, your teammates, it was one of them, who said something to the effect of nobody really knows like just how hard it has been for Candace to be as good as she's been, to be as prepared as she's been, and at the same time, raise a child. Um, you know, I have twins, and it's, uh, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a pro athlete um, uh, with a young, a young child as you have done it. So I just wanted to get some insight into, like, were you always somebody who was great with, uh, with scheduling? Uh, are you someone who can comp- compartmentalize really well, or did you have to grow into this? You know, they say if you don't know any different, you don't know any different. You know, Layla was born after my rookie year. So essentially, we've grown up together. I was 23 when she was born. I had just wow. finished my first season. And then right after she was born, I went straight into my second season. You know, I was on, uh, you know, I was, I was doing that. And so it, it's kind of like we just learned together. And honestly, she is my, she is the easiest child. She goes and adjusts, and I'm so fortunate to have her because she could have made things so difficult. But it's like she knew when I needed a pregame nap and she agreed to, to sleep when she was born. Um, you know, she, she took us going to China and spending Christmas in China with excitement. And, wow. you know, I, I am fortunate to have her as my kid and to have her support me. And I think that's what this decision, too, was, was it's time for mom to kind of cheer, be the cheerleader as well. I, I'm going to be at every game. I'm going to drop her off at school every day. And that's something that, you know, you realize how fast they grow up. And I just know that these are moments that you can't get back. And, you know, she's she's been awesome for me. So I, I'm very fortunate. All right. I want to um, I want to finish up with a couple of uh, WNBA-related things. I've covered women's college basketball uh, going on two decades now. So mm-hmm. a lot of the players who are in the WNBA I watched and covered in college. So I'm just, I've always been, I've had an interest in the league just because it's fascinating to see somebody who I wrote about or watched at 20 playing Mm -hmm. at 32 or 33. And the one thing that's clear is in the last, in basically in your era, the league has really grown athletically. It's a much more athletic and physical game. I think a much more watchable game. Part of that, I think clearly your battles against Minnesota um, have been a big reason for that growth in your mind where do you think the league is today versus where you hope or think it might be let's say 10 years from now it's about access it's about opportunity it's about everything that's the reason why the, the league is where it's at now um and the growth and i mean if to think what 30 40 years ago we weren't allowed to to play sports in in college you know, and I think people are forgetting how much time it took the NBA to grow to what it is today. And the WNBA is 23 years young. The NBA was on tape delay in the 80s. The finals right. were on tape delay in the 80s. So to compare CBS, us, yep. yes, and so to compare us to a league such as the NBA and the NFL, it's unfair. And I think we need to compare ourselves to where we we are and where we've been. And the league is growing the talent is growing 
if you watch this year, the parity in women's basketball was at an all-time high with the amount of teams that had similar records and, and were competing. I mean, two through six or seven was up in the air until the day we played the last game of the regular season. So for, for me, it's exciting because I think I came in in an era where it was like, you're 6'4", go stand by the basket and make hook shots. And now you see 6'4", right. we're leading the break. So I'm excited to be a part of this and to be a part of that next change, that next wave. What's um, the, the league in cities like Seattle and Minnesota are really interesting to me. They draw really well. But especially like in Seattle, they're not competing against as many pro teams as you guys do for the Sparks in Los Angeles. So I just wonder if you can give listeners a sense of um, what's the difficulty or how difficult is it to try to try to get people to come out to games in a city that has so many sports options, not to mention, obviously, the options of just living in Los Angeles, the weather and everything else that's part of living out there? Well, first, it's in the summer in Los Angeles. So if you think, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard for me to be inside in the summer. You know, you want to be outside. So I think it's appealing to other things. It's not just about the game of basketball. When you go watch other teams play, yes, you go to watch the superstars, but it's the other stuff. It's the entertainment. And I think that's what the Los Angeles Sparks have done an amazing job with the in-game entertainment. I mean... If you come to a Sparks game, you'll know who DJ Malski is. He makes the environment fun. He makes it family-friendly. He makes it exciting. There's dance-offs. There's things like that around the game. And so I think it's about just making it entertaining and entertainment. And, you know, obviously you see great basketball in the process. And so I think there's the, the cities and the teams that have mastered that have been successful. All right, let's finish up with a couple of uh... – WNBA specific questions, which uh, yeah, I like it. This this is very exciting for me because I get to get inside the mind of one of the the all timers. Who is the toughest player you've ever guarded, and why? Who I've ever guarded? Yep. You know, um, I will say that in terms of I play the three position overseas occasionally, and. our team in Turkey, Fenerbahce, played Diana Taurasi's team in Ekaterinburg. And, yeah. you know, Diana and I had to guard each other. And so it's, you know, you can't make a lot of mistakes when you're guarding Diana Taurasi. You can't, you know, shoot the gap because she's going to flare and she's going to get a jump shot. Uh, you got to lock and trail. you got to stay disciplined. So I would say that just in terms of her capitalizing on the mistakes that the defense makes, you know, she she's the toughest guard. Well, I want to get that on YouTube somewhere, Candace, so I can check that out. Uh, somebody <laughs> must have filmed that somewhere. Um, best foreign, best foreign country to play in, and why? Oh my goodness, I love Istanbul, Turkey. That is one of my favorite places. Um, the city, uh, just the history behind it. It's gorgeous. The weather. They make an amazing cup of coffee. Turkish tea is amazing. The baklava. <laughs> I could go on and on. The rice pudding. I gained about fifteen pounds when I was over there. <laughs> Chamber of Commerce for Turkey. I love it. Um, your favorite, your favorite spot on the floor, and why? My favorite spot on the floor to operate is in the tunnel. I love just kind of that sweet spot in the middle of the floor when the ball gets reversed to me. And I think everybody thinks of a point guard as a point guard that has the ball all the time. But the four position, what the WNBA and the NBA is learning now, they have the ball in the middle of the floor and making a lot more decisions now in this game. And they're 
going into screener rolls and they're reversing the ball, they're dribble handoffing, they're they're making distributing pass passing and so for me that's my favorite spot to have it because I think I have an advantage to see the entire floor. All right, I got four more for you. Game tied, clock under five seconds, other than yourself, who do you want to take the final shot and why? Chelsea Gray. If you didn't watch this year uh, with the LA Sparks, she's hit clutch shot after clutch shot for us for the last three years. And, you know, it's just like there's something about her that it's like in those moments she elevates her game and she relishes those opportunities. And when you have somebody like that, that just seizes the moment, I just want her on my team and I'm glad she's on my team. Yeah, she she um, she has become a – I mean, she was a good player in college, but she has become an unbelievable player in the pros. Um, yeah. If you were starting a WA franchise today – who is the player you would pick first to build around? I mean, can, I, I think players should say themselves, right? <laughs> I'm, el- I'm, el- I'm eliminating you from, from this answer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I wasn't sure. Honestly, I'm going to go with Chelsea Gray again. I mean, she's a, she's a guard that has court vision, is a big guard, so she's able to post up. Her game is evolving. She's in the, you know, the prime of her career. And you just have to put weapons around her that are going to be successful. So I think, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going far from from home. I'm going to stay with the LA Sparks and Chelsea Gray. All right, I like that. That's that's the hometown pick. Brianna Stewart fans may be unhappy, but all right, that's solid. Yeah, but um, I mean, Stewie knows. Stewie knows. It's it's you know I'm sensitive. They won the championship this year. Yeah, no, I can <laughs> understand that. Um, all right, this uh, I think uh, this will be interesting. You can put yourself in here on this one, all okay? Right. I want your okay. all-time WNBA starting five, and you are welcome to go back to um, like the Swoops era if you want, or you can keep it current to today's players. But I need Sorry. an all-time starting five. And if you could do positions, a positional starting five, that'd be cooler. Uh, I'll, I'll gotcha. maybe give you a little bit of leeway if you want to go three guards, but positional is no, always more interesting. I got it. I got you. Right. Um, I would start Tisha Pinachero as my point guard. Ooh. I would start Diana Taurasi as my two. I would start Cynthia Cooper as my three. Yeah, I love that. I would, That's good. I would go uh, Lisa Leslie as my five, and then I'm going to hold down the four position. Nice. All right. So, Tisha, Cynthia, Lisa, uh, yourself. That's a uh, that's interesting. Tisha, I think younger WNBA fans have no idea how good she was. Both in college I and pros. I have a story about Tisha. When she was playing in college, my brother was at the Bradley University. And Anthony she Parker. was playing. Yes, Anthony Parker. She was playing at, oh my goodness, what school did she go to? I see the mom. Old, oh Old, Old Dominion? Old Dominion. Maybe? Yeah, she was playing at Old yeah. Dominion. And Old Dominion was playing the Bradley girls, the Bradley women's team. And my brother went to see the game to cheer for the Bradley women's team with us. And the entire time in the stands, we were like, oh, oh, my gosh, what? Like, and so the entire time we were just in awe of her passing ability and her ability to control the game, the tempo, everything. So it's been, you know, fun watching her play. And, of course, who doesn't remember the Jason Williams and her commercial of, like, you know, white chocolate with her doing spin <laughs> pass right. Sacramento. So, yeah. All right, final two, Candice. Uh, quick college one. Uh, as one of the famous Lady Vols, are you happy to see the Tennessee playing UConn again? 
You might not be, but are but I think college basketball fans are happy to see that. No, I think I'm excited to. I mean, it's a rivalry that has been a part and kind of built women's basketball. You know, it's two of the top programs in women's basketball playing each other. I mean, North Carolina and Duke are are that in the men's game, and they play. So I think it's only fitting that that we play. But I will add that we we beat them the last two times, and I dunked on their home court the last <laughs> time. So I just wanted to throw that in um, the conversation. Nice. Yeah, it's always. I mean, you know, whether it's you, Catchings, Randall, Bird, uh, Tarazi, that rivalry never ends, which is great. It's good for good for us <laughs> watching it. Um, all right, finally, I I want to I th- I assume you would you like everybody else in the world. You think the Warriors are going to win the West? Is that that's my is that correct? So I can ask my final question, or or is that yeah? Not I'm like everybody else in the world. I think this is the last year. I will go and say that, but I think that this is going to be an absolute dominant Warriors team. I mean, I I think this is this is their best puzzle. If anybody was going to beat them, they needed to beat them last year with all the injuries and everything like, they had. But this year, they're going to be a well-oiled machine. It's going to be it's going to be trouble. I I agree. So I'm at, I I'm we're t- I'm taping this in Toronto. So I'm at, I want to end with an Eastern Conference question because obviously that is to me the more interesting conference in terms of who's going to get out of it. So when you have looked at the Eastern Conference between all the contenders, Boston, Philly, Toronto, you know maybe people think Milwaukee takes a jump, et cetera, Indiana. Who do you like coming out of the East and why? I've always been a Boston fan. And in fact, Kyrie Irving is my MVP pick for this season. Wow. A lot of people are underestimating what he's going to do in the East. And with him being healthy, I mean, Boston is already an amazing regular season team because they defend Brad Stevens, you know, their core. Um, But I I have Boston coming out of the East. And I do have Toronto having a great regular season. I mean, they're they're going to have a, a fantastic regular season in terms of record. But I just think in the playoffs, with the amount of experience that they got last year from getting to to the Eastern Conference Finals, there's there's going to be no answer for Boston in the playoffs. Uh, that won't make people in the city happy, but I think it's I think Boston is absolutely the de facto favorite. We'll see how uh, <laughs> we'll see how Kyrie and Hayward. Uh, play together with Hayward back. All right, Candace Parker, as I said at the top, she has joined uh, the NBA on TNT and NBA TV. She'll work as an analyst. She's already done studio work for the NCAA tournament. She'll do that again. You'll be able to catch her on the players-only telecasts, which uh, have been pretty popular. You'll find that on NBA TV. And uh, you will also see her, again, playing for the WNBA's Los Angeles Sparks. And like Sue Bird, I expect her to play for the next 10 to 20 years, which will be... (laughs) Should be very good for basketball. Listen, Candice, uh, I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some time to do this, and I wish you nothing but the best of luck on Turner. I think you're going to be good, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Rachel Nichols and Candice Parker for two really good segments. If you like this kind of content, please check out the Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, page on Apple Podcast. Subscribe, leave us a review. That is how this podcast continues. Prior to Rachel and Candace Jamel Hill, um, which a lot of people seem to enjoy that conversation with her. Chris Haynes, the Yahoo Sports Senior Insider. Liam McHugh, Scott Hansen, 
of the NFL Red Zone, Adam Schefter, Chanae Ogumake, John Smoltz, Rebecca Lowe, and you can go through the rest of the list of the sports media with Richard Deitch. Podcast, my thanks to people at Sportsnet 590 and Derek Brandeo today for helping me out uh, in terms of we taped this today from Toronto, so much obliged to those guys. All right, for uh, everybody at Cadence 13, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast.